Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. These words from uh, Ephesians 2, speaking about the church of Christ. And yes, I've been assigned for this circuit sermon series. I've been assigned uh, uh, to talk about the early church, its birth. Um, Obviously, the early church was so vibrant, it was, I think it's even right to say, earth-shattering. It was very effective in its witness for the Lord Jesus. And so we'd just like to look at that together here and gather lessons and for our life and pilgrimage and church life here today. Naturally, with a subject like that, we turn to the book of Acts, the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and we, Larry just read the introduction of that book and all the way to the key verse of the book, which I would suggest is Acts 1.8. And then Larry read just a, a couple more lessons, a couple more verses after that. So here this morning, thinking about the birth of the church, the early church, Uh, We'd especially like to zero in on the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. That's where we'll spend most of our time here in the next number of minutes or hours or however that might happen to be on such a big subject. The word church, church, is mentioned 18 times in the book of Acts, 18 times. And as we think of the church, um, the New Testament describes the church, gives descriptions and titles elsewhere in the New Testament, of course, of of what the church is. And you're thinking probably, well, the passage I just read in Ephesians talks about how the church is a building. The book of Ephesians elsewhere talks about how the, the church is like a body and like a bride and elsewhere about like a family and is called a flock and a fold. And one place, it's called the church is called the pillar and ground of the church. We won't talk about that anymore, except to say that as I think of the flock and I think of the fold, remember where in the New Testament it's um, the, uh, the church is called a flock. Feed the I think it's in 1 Peter, feed the flock of God which is among you. Feed the flock of God which is among you. So that certainly speaks of the local church. So the pastors at Vine Road have been charged to feed this flock. Jesus called the church a fold. There shall be one fold and one shepherd. Remember, that's in John, the book of John. That speaks of certainly of the one true gigantic earth, um, worldwide church, doesn't it? So as we think of the church and talk about the church, there are applications for both the local church as well as the universal church. 
thinking of those descriptions, fold, flock, body, bride, building, it's easy to tell, isn't it? I think it's easy for us to understand that the church, the church is very precious to God. And it's also easy to tell that it should be very precious to every blood-bought child of God as well. So on a subject like this, I just picked out a few um, what I would think would be pivotal passages, verses, or chapters in the book of Acts. I'm especially thinking about five different ones. And as we do, but before we do that, and to look at key concepts, themes, what made the church so vibrant? What made the church so earth-shattering? What made the church so effective in their uh, time and culture? Before that, the two things um, that I would like to just think about together, and the first one is how do we know, how can we tell that Luke really, and that Luke in his recounting of the events and places and people, that, that, is, that it's really trustworthy. How did he know? Uh, to answer that question, we could go different ways. We'll just go one way, and that's to think about a man named Sir William Ramsey. You might know that he lived uh, back in the 19th century, and I just read this about Sir William Ramsey, this is from Stan Mitchell, who wrote in the Forthright magazine. Sir William Ramsey, 1851 to 1939, was an archaeologist and biblical skeptic. He taught at the University of Aberdeen and believed that Bible writers made facts and stories up. The book of Acts, he declared, was full of errors. And to prove this contention, he traveled to Asia Minor to demonstrate Luke's unreliability. He understood he could not prove or disprove miracle accounts, but if he could show Luke to be a sloppy historian on facts that could be verified, geographical and historical, he felt he could discredit Luke's unverifiable stories. Ramsey the skeptic returned to Great Britain a believer. Every one of Luke's facts checked out. He found Luke to use specific and accurate terminology that reflected a careful chronicle of events. His conclusion was that Luke was a highly reliable historian, rendering the story of the early church in the book of Acts a remarkably clear one. And we, we're not surprised, are we, that the God of the word is a very accurate one and sees to it that what is written it's God-breathed, and it's truth, it's accurate, it's right, it's complete. Thank God for the assurance that we have, the certainty that God, that Luke got it right, just as the whole Bible got it right. Uh, just to talk about William Ramsey a little bit more, he wrote a, a number of books. One of them is a classic called St. Paul the Traveler in America. The Traveler, St. Paul, the Traveler and Roman Citizen. He wrote that in, it was published in 1895, and I just looked again this morning. It's still in print after 127 years. Uh, you can get it 
uh, on uh, Christian book distributors or Amazon or places like that. Uh, and secondly, so by way of introduction, we're still thinking about introduction. Secondly, it just seems to me like, uh, before we go too much further, that I should be able to allow to give you a quiz as to what you already know about this subject. Now, you're privileged at school, you know, to have quizzes during the course of the week, so why couldn't I give you one today? Um, so, it'll just be a short one, perhaps, and... It won't be like in my high school days. One of our, my history teachers, Myron Dietz, used to give us quizzes. And he would hand out quarter sizes of papers. And they'd always have ten questions. Well, I'm going to be real easy on you, just five questions, all right? So here's the quiz. And you don't need to write it down on paper or anything, but just answer it in your mind. And then we'll go back and maybe work... Uh, think about the answers. So, Are you ready? Number one, the Pentecost in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, oh, I forgot to say that four of these, just to make it easy, are true-false questions, and one of them is a fill-in-the-blank. So the true and false questions. Number one, the Pentecost in Acts 2 was the very first Pentecost ever had, true or false, and you just answer that in your mind. The Pentecost in Acts 2 was the very first one ever had. Number two, the Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the Holy Spirit. True or false? The Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the Holy Spirit. Number three, the Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the church. The Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the church. So you're following along and you're answering in your mind. Number four, the word... Catholic, true or false, has a good, proper, right connotation. The word Catholic has a good, proper, right connotation. So that's the four true or false. You have that now, right? Uh, number five is the fill in the blank. What does the Greek word ecclesia, which is translated church in our Bibles, mean? What does the word ecclesia, which is translated church in our Bibles, mean? So, there's the quiz. Now we go to, um, and to correct, to answer these. Number one, and help me here, you can just call it out. The Pentecost in Acts 2 was the very first one ever recorded. True or false? I hear a couple of falses. Good. Um, this was actually about the 1500th one. Uh, God commanded the, the Feast of Pentecost to be celebrated by the nation of Israel way back in Leviticus 23. Uh, maybe verses 12 to 17. I, don't quote me on that. Uh, it, it's not called that there, but it was that feast, the Feast of Pentecost. And it pointed forward to what happened on the day of uh, in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost, the Bible says, was fully come. Number two, so, number one is false. Number two, the Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the Holy Spirit. 
I heard some false there. That's correct. We should be pretty We should be very emphatic about that. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity of God, um, part of the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and always was. Uh, he has no birthday. The Holy Spirit has no birthday, but is. Uh, Yes. Um, I, we should say, too, as we think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Old Testament times was different from New Testament times. In what ways? Well, in Old Testament time, remember the Bible often says that the Spirit of God came upon this person. But in the New Testament, uh, the Spirit came to indwell much better we are so privileged in Old Testament times. And I just noticed this morning in my footnotes in my Bible, I wonder if I can find it now, that it mentions that, that before it was just upon people, but now it's actually within God's people. The Holy Spirit is working from within. And the footnote goes on to say that it was, secondly, in Old Testament times, it was... Not that now in New Testament times it's permanent. The Holy Spirit came and went in Old Testament times, and it just came upon a person for a special work or ministry that God had called that person to. And I think that David, of David, it's said that the Holy Spirit came upon him and didn't never left. But typically, it came and went. In in the work of the church, the Holy Spirit in the in the church is is permanently indwells. And the third thing that the Bible footnote here says that I noticed this morning that is that it was in Old Testament times it was exceptional. It just happened occasionally that the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of people. Where in our day, in the church age, it's normal. It's for every person, every Christian. All right, number three. So the first two were false. Number three, Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the church. True, that is true. There was no church in Old Testament times. God worked in the nation of Israel, but the church is a different entity completely. And God has special um, place for the nation of Israel. Did then, still does, and always will have. And we'll continue to have, as long as there's uh, time and life here on earth. But the church is a New Testament. The, the Pentecost was the birthday of the church. Okay, number four. The word Catholic has a good, proper, and right connotation. True or false? True. True. What does the word Catholic mean? Universal. Universal. Worldwide. And the church of Jesus Christ is that. It's universal. It's worldwide. It's for all tribes and peoples and tongues and nations. And it's not just for Lancaster County people, not just for American people. It's for all people. And Donovan and Althea believe that. And that's why they are working in Greece. Yes, the word Catholic, we often, because of you know, 
uh, think of it as kind of a bad term, but the word itself, the original word itself, Catholic, is a, is a concept that we need to be all right with. It's a wonderful word. It's the, the church is worldwide. It's for everyone. And number five, the fill in the blank. What does the Greek word ecclesia, which is translated church in our Bibles, mean? What does the word mean? Yes, good, Jason. It means called out. The church is a called out people. You have been, as a member of the Church of Christ, the Catholic Church of Christ, have been called out from this, out of darkness into this marvelous light in which we are living. Uh, we understand the concept, don't we, that here is a body of people, everybody on earth, godless, without God and in the world, but God has called us out and placed us over here in his kingdom, God's church. The church, as it's used in the Bible, from the Greek word actually means called out. We, as God's people, part of God's church, we have individually been called out and placed into the church of Christ. All right, well, let's think about now going to a couple different passages and verses in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 1.8, the key verse of the book of Acts, and it's also been called an index of the book of Acts. The first part has to do with Jerusalem, and then it kind of expands to Judea, and then Samaria, and on to the uttermost parts of the world. I had never noticed, like you probably have, that Acts 1-8 were the last words given by Jesus before he ascended to heaven. Not only, I think, is it not, not only is it the last words recorded in scripture of Jesus' words before he left, but I think actually the last words. Look at verse 9. Significant last words. but ye shall receive power. Certainly, we are so thankful for the power for witness that Jesus gives through his Holy Spirit. Thank God for his Holy Spirit. Thank God for the privilege. Well, looking at the book of at Acts 1-8 just a little bit, I think we'll confine ourselves to the what and the where before we keep moving. What the what and the where. Do you see it? But you, what the what is that we shall be witnesses. What is it that we are called to do and commanded to be witnesses? We're talking about the what. What is a witness? What is a witness? Well, if you're thinking of it as a legal term, we often think of it that way. You know, there's in a courtroom setting, there's witnesses. In a, in a trial, in a courtroom, um, there are various people, lots of people oftentimes. There's prosecuting attorneys, and there's defense attorneys, and there's a judge, and there are jury members, and there's a bailiff, and there's a stenographer, and then there's the witnesses, the witnesses. And most of these people in a courtroom are highly 
learned, highly trained, and they're well-versed in legal intricacies, you know, the, you know how the attorneys do and can do uh, back and forth all the time. But a witness, the witness is not necessarily highly trained or highly learned. We are called to be witnesses for the Lord. And what, does, what is a witness now, once again, in a courtroom setting? What does a witness do? He says what he has experienced, what he has seen and heard. It doesn't take someone real smart. It doesn't take someone, need someone who is real good at it to be a witness. To be a witness in a courtroom, to be a witness for Christ, Acts 1.8, we need merely say what we have experienced what I have seen, what I have heard. That's what God has called us to do, to be. The what in Acts 1.8 is to be a witness. You don't have to be an expert, just be a witness. Going on and thinking about the where. We talked about the what. The what is being a witness for the Lord. The where is Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And uh, I think it was John Phillips has said that, has put it this way, which I really like, that J Jerusalem is our community. Judea is our country. Samaria is our continent. And then the outermost parts of the earth, of course, is everyone, everywhere. Now, in our church at Weavertown, within the last two months, we, we sent off two young men uh, to, to be in missions. And one of them, Josh Esch, he moved from his Jerusalem, his home community, to Judea. He stayed in the same country. He went to Mountain View Home in Virginia. Uh, Tony Stolzfus, we sent him to Samaria. He left his community and he left his country but stayed in the same continent in Belize. And then I know that you have people um, like Wilma King in Germany and Donovan and Althea who have left community, they've left country, they've left their continent and have gone to the uttermost parts of the world. Thank God for people like that. We are called to be witnesses wherever we are. Perhaps God has called you to be a witness in Jerusalem and hasn't called you elsewhere as of yet. Just that well, we are called to be witness where we are. Just one... Um, so at one point, I worked at a farmer's market in Bristol, which is about 80 miles east. And one day, a lady came in there, and she was blind, and we got to talking, and she, after a while, she was interested, and after a while, we found out that she knows me, because she listens to the sermons from Weavertown Church. So, as I was in Jerusalem, I was also being a witness in Judea, uh, from my away from my own community, even as I only stayed, basically, in Jerusalem, my Jerusalem. And I remember a long time ago that Aaron Lapp wrote in the Calvary Messenger about our modern mobile mission field, how that 
Yes, we go to the outermost parts of the world, but the world comes to us as well. So we, even here, you, me, even here in our Jerusalem, can be a witness unto the outermost parts of the earth because people come here. What a privilege it is to be a witness. God has called us to that. Let's go to Acts 2. And here, like usual, we hardly know where to start or stop or where to go and not to go. The day of Pentecost, Acts 2. We're thinking about the early church and the birth of the church and their witness in, the, in their world. Let's just look at verse 42 after the sermon. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And someone has said um, four things there. They continued steadfastly in these four areas of life. And someone has said that uh, the apostles' doctrine would, could be called truth. If there are a few of us that appreciate alliteration, uh, Seems like we can learn and understand and remember better that way. If that's the case, um, the apostles' doctrine could be labeled truth. Truth. And I think it's significant that of the four, the apostles' doctrine is first. First and foremost, I think it's significant that that's listed first. Truth. It's important that we do truth, that we hear truth and understand truth and love truth and do truth truth. Um, precept precedes practice, right? It's you, one cannot live truly. One can hardly live truly without first having the true um, truth ingrained inside. Truth can hardly come out outside unless it's been ingrained and in, in part of oneself inside. Precept precedes practice. It's so important that we understand and, and love truth. It comes from here. Truth. The apostles' doctrine. And I so appreciated it. A week or two ago, I, I noticed that someone had said, talking about the apostles' doctrine now, that, and I quote, this also came from a footnote in my Bible. The apostles' doctrine was true, not because an apostle taught it, but because it was consistent with the scriptures. And I think maybe that's one of the more significant things that we'll hear together today. The apostles' doctrine was true, not because an apostle taught it, but because it was consistent with the scriptures. Truth. The apostles' doctrine. Well, the fellowship then, secondly, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Um, one person called that the tie. So the apostle doctrine is truth. Fellowship is tie, is the tie. And it reminds me of the song, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship, the fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. And we do thank God for the privilege of fellowship within the church. Isn't it a wonderful thing? Truth and the truth the tie. The breaking of bread could we could call the table. I think it means communion there. 
because just no ordinary Sunday afternoon dinners together could be part of fellowship. And fourthly, in prayers, and we could call that the throne. The truth. They were, they were steadfast in the truth, in the tie of fellowship, in obedience to God, in communion, and all that that includes and symbolizes, and certainly in prayers. Best way to advance? One of the, one of the good ways to advance the kingdom of God in our battle is, well, one can march forward and one can run, but the best way to advance is on our knees, is it not? Thank God for the privilege of truth and fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. The early church was just really, really good at that and have given us an example um, here in the 21st century, that fourfold part of steadfastness. How to be steadfast in our day today? Well, I think it's in truth and in fellowship and in obedience to all God's commands and in praying. Verse 47, just moving along real quickly. This, the last verse in Acts 2, kind of ties things together. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Let's just talk about two words there in that verse. I think the first one that we should mention is the word church. This is the first mention in the book of Acts of the church. First of 18 times. Church, it means ecclesia. Uh, the word is ecclesia, which means called out. We have been called out. And the Lord added to the called out ones daily, such as should be saved. Thank God that he is, is calling out, that he called out back then. He calls out today. And that there are still people today who are being called out and responding in truth and faithfulness to God. Lots of people like that right here at Mine Road Church today. Secondly, the second word that we just want to mention is the verb. So the church is a noun, but the verb added. Added. The Lord added. Thinking about that, John Phillips says, that is the only way anyone can be added to the church. The Lord adds to its members those he saves. The church does not grow by adding to its roles the names of baptized infants. It does not grow by high-pressure evangelism and doubtful professions of faith. It grows as the Lord adds saved people to its numbers. He has been adding it to it daily ever since, sometimes by the thousands, sometimes a few here, a few there. Now a child at mother's knee, now an old man dying in his bed. But we can be assured we he will go on doing that, adding and adding until the rapture. As he's adding, the Lord is building his church. Thank God that that offer of being called out of darkness into his marvelous light is for us here today as much as it was 2,000 years ago. And I would just say that if the Lord is calling you and you have not yet responded, do that today. Thinking just a little bit about 
Acts 6. Now, we talked a little bit about Acts 1-8, some about Acts 2. Going now to three verses, especially in Acts 6. Another theme, another concept of, of the, that... In which, the Holy, uh, in which the early church is a good example for our church age, for our time today. And this is that God provided godly leadership. We see it especially in, well, yes, in the first seven verses, zeroing in on five to seven. Godly leadership. The, the church, verse three and verse five, I think it's interesting that the apostles, who were the leaders, when uh, noticing that there's a need that they're not fulfilling, they said, well, why don't we fix that by you, the church, um, choosing some people to do that? Verse 3. So the people did that. And the saying, verse 5, pleased the whole multitude. The church was tasked with participating in the selection and they were pleased at the end result, and I think they were pleased in all for all the right reasons. Godly leadership. When the godly leadership in place noticed that there's a need, they went ahead and said, right, we haven't been doing it quite right, so let's fix this. Godly leadership. Yet today, today, when competent, godly leadership is in place, there is a better chance that numerical and especially spiritual growth will happen, can happen. Uh, as I think of that, uh, the, the part of leadership, well, I just think about pastors and leaders in our church at Weavertown that have, from whom that I have learned so much and, and to whom I owe so much. You know, people like Elam Kaufman and Chris Byler and John, Lapp, John U. Lapp and Aaron Lapp and Gideon Stolzfus. Um, you could say the same about um, your older leaders here at Mine Road. And I'm looking at John Glick and I'm looking at Daniel Ray. Yes, thank God for these men who have faithfully discharged their duties and I also thank God for the pastors with which I serve today at Weavertown. I'm so blessed. You could do your church leaders a big favor if you would either be a Berean or continue being a Berean. You know about the Bereans, right? Acts 17, 11, these were more noble in that they searched the in that they well you look it up there's two places uh, there's two parts of being a Berean Acts 17:11 number 1 is digesting what is said by the by the pastors and then number 2 going to the bible to verify it Ronald Reagan used to say trust but verify and you will, will be a tremendous uh, asset to your church if you are, will be, are willing to be or continue to be a Berean that does those two things. Listens with all their, your heart and then goes to the Bible uh, to have that verified. 
Every faithful church leader needs to be surrounded by Bereans. And every faithful church leader thrives on being surrounded by Bereans. I think of Lonnie Beachy, um, Plain City, Ohio. He says how that a number of years ago uh, there was a meeting in which one of their members um, talked about their trip to Israel, the Holy Land. I think, you know, slides or PowerPoint. And Lonnie, being the moderator that evening, after the member was finished, he, he made some comments and said, we have had a good, cheap um, trip to Israel this evening. And after the meeting concluded, one of the members came up and said, you know, Lonnie, that really wasn't the right term to use. Cheap means unvaluable, uh, not worth much. You should have used the word inexpensive. And at that point, Lonnie had the choice of thinking that that member was critical and nitpicky, or he could have said, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're right. I'm going to try to remember that for next time. Godly leadership was one of the keys here in the early church, and it is yet today. And our response to godly leadership counts too. Uh, Don't forget, be a Berean. I'm ready to move to Acts 8 to think about something else that the church experienced and that is that witnessing, being a faithful witness, which is saying what you have seen and heard and experienced. We have been called to be witnesses in our world. The church has been called and you individually and me as well individually have been called to be a witness. Witnessing typically equals opposition. You see it in Acts 8, verse 1, and again in verse 4. How discouraging is that? Opposition to the truth? Well, the early church, and I'm reading now from Acts 5, 41, and they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing, That word is rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I remember years ago in Sunday school class, maybe I was 10 or 12 or 14 years old, and our Sunday school teacher, Floyd Stalsfus of Pequay, said that Satan said something like this, and he said it so well that I remember it Uh, 60 years later, he said that Satan noticed how that the church, that there was a fire starting in Jerusalem. Um, The church was on fire, and Satan moved to stop that by stamping out the church. But but he waited too long, and all that ever happened, the only result that that came from his stamping, attempting to stamp out the fire of the church is that sparks went everywhere, and that's what it is the case. Therefore, uh, Acts 8.4, therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. For over 300 years, uh, our country, America, 
has been a beacon of religious freedom and so much so that consciously or subconsciously we almost think it to be our right that we live here freely without persecution. Uh, just a week or two ago, uh, an Anabaptist brother told me that William Penn, back in the early 1700s, actively was recruiting, over there in the old country, was actively recruiting Anabaptists to come over here to the New World for freedom of religion to help settle Penn's woods. good 300 years ago, and here we are still in Penn's Woods, and the Lord has largely granted us great, wonderful, full-fledged freedom of religion and exemption from persecution. And I just, that brings into my mind just now a number of questions. Can you help me with these questions? Here they are. Number one, how long can this last? Number two question, does it seem to you as if there are Christian-hating storm clouds on the horizon? Another question, if indeed that is the case, are we ready for such? And we can't answer those questions definitively as we sit here comfortably in freedom today, but I have a fourth question. And this one, help me answer this one. And the the fourth question is, would God be able to see us through? The answer is yes. He can and he would and he will. 1 Timothy 2.2, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And I've always noticed and stressed and prayed that first phrase, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life. But it seems to me just now, if the most pertinent one, and the one that uh, phrase there would be the, in all godliness and honesty. What do you think? Maybe that's the one that we're most in need of. Well, so we've looked at just a few concepts and thoughts and noticed what made the church tick, uh, what made it so vibrant and earth-shattering and effective in their day and in their, in, in their world. Just picked out a few little things. Um, in closing, we, would you back up with me to Acts 1, way back to Acts 1, verses 9 and 11, the three last verses that Larry read a little while back. Don't give up. Don't give up the fight. Jesus is coming back again, just like he said. Verses 9 through 11 of Acts 1. He's coming again, bodily, personally, literally. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, when he does, every true member, every member of the true church of God that hasn't already been will be caught up to be with God into heaven itself. That's the term that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, caught up. Then we shall all be caught up. So our Christian pilgrimage on earth begins when we are called out of the world system and transferred over to the church. 
we're called out and we respond to that in faith and meekness. And then our Christian life ends when we're caught up. That caught in, being caught up could be when God calls the whole church home in the rapture, or it could be uh, in death, uh, like one of the members of our church, Elmer Glick, died just this morning. So the beginning of our church experience is being called out. That's what the word church means. And the culmination of that is when we are caught up, up to heaven itself, up yonder, the land of our dreams, like the song said, up to the better land, to the land of pure delight. Let's see, I don't think that I have given you the title for the sermon today yet, have I? Uh, just for a change, the title comes at the end of the sermon, and it's called out, caught up. Thank God for his church. Thank, you that, thank God that he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thank you for, and I thank God for that future time when he will catch us up to be with himself. And I say, and I think we together say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Will you kneel with me in prayer?